All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we get started in our study of the word, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come together, focus on you, to focus on your word, to be reminded that as we look out on the uh, various uh, things that are going on in our world, nationally as well as internationally, sometimes domestically with the rise of crime and many other things that are going on, Father, we recognize that you are still in control and you're still faithful to us as individual believers. You're faithful to your promises to us. And that as we look at the broad picture of prophecy in the future, and especially in that most horrible of all times, the tribulation, you manifest your faithfulness to Israel, your faithfulness to your promises to Israel, and we can take great courage and encouragement from Uh, how you are always faithful and true. And, Father, you will be faithful to us in the small things as you are faithful to Israel in the big things. And, Father, we're thankful for all that you've provided for us. And as we study today, may we be encouraged by uh, your faithfulness to us in everything. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is one Sunday every year when, when I feel justified whatever the wrong thing may come out of my mouth because I can blame it on jet lag. <laughs> Just got back Friday afternoon from uh, two weeks in Kiev. Everything went really well uh, travel-wise as opposed to some of the early years when I went over there. It was quite, uh, quite good. About four or five years ago, they built a new international terminal there, which is almost modern. Uh, they held an... Uh, um, an international or European uh, soccer uh, championship there, and the EU poured a whole bunch of money into into Ukraine to redo a lot of their infrastructure. So it's uh, the airport benefited a lot, and um, so the, everything went very very smoothly. I didn't have anybody sitting next to me either on the way over there or on the way back, so I got to sleep a lot on the plane. It was comfortable. The only trouble was. Somebody here or out there somewhere gave me a bad cold that hit me about two hours into the flight out of here. And so my first uh, seven or eight days was uh, fighting all the stuff with the cold, but it wasn't so bad that it limited anything. I spoke both Sundays I was there at the Word of God Church and taught um, two weeks in the... um, Word of God Bible College, and I thought I would show you some pictures of the students. We had uh, 10 students, and there were a couple of auditors uh, in the course. Uh, this year, I taught on rewards and judgments. Here are some of the students. The guy on the left over here's name is Vova, and this is his second year. Um, this is uh, uh, 
Ira, and she is in her first year, and uh, this is Olya. She is in her, uh, this is her first year. Her husband completed his uh, two-year coursework last year, and then this is Katya. This is uh, her second year. Um, then we have Tanya back in the corner here, and Oleg, and uh, I can't think of his wife's name right now. I could barely see her because it was kind of a corner between my desk and her, so I didn't see her a lot. But he asked some really great questions. This is Andre. He's the translator, been the translator the last uh, four or five years, and he just does a, um, a tremendous job. He's very diligent. The first year that I had him, I, I, it, it, initially it sort of irritated me. If you've never worked with a translator, sometimes it can be a, a little difficult because I would say something, and then he would start questioning me. And and it would come across a little wrong. And uh, what's interesting, when I first went over there, I thought uh, all the students were mad at me the way they were asking questions. That's just Russian. Russian is not the language you would want to use to woo a beautiful woman. It, and neither is German. It sounds harsh and militant, and it always sounds like they're picking a fight with you. But... Um, what he's very diligent, and so if I said something, he wanted to make sure that he truly understood what I was trying to say. And so he would sometimes he would stop and he would ask two or three questions, not because he was questioning what I was saying, even though it sort of sounded like that. He really wanted to make sure he accurately understood what I was trying to communicate, so that he in turn could accurately communicate that uh, to the students. So he's, this is his third year, I believe. This is his second time to go through rewards and judgments with me. And I had uh, printed up fairly detailed notes, so he had read through that, also translated the students' notes for them ahead of time. And so that was uh, very well done. He did an, does an excellent job of translating. And here's all of the students together. When I showed the previous pictures, that was a day when I think three of the students were out ill that day, so it was a... Uh, smaller class. So there's all the, all the students together, uh, and it was a, a great class. There are, as I said, 10 students, but the average class has only been 12. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but Jim's been doing this for 16 years. So when you multiply seven or eight graduates, six, seven, eight graduates every year for uh, 16 years, that comes out to a large number of individuals who, for the most part, probably at least half of whom are in a, have developed a significant ministry. Many of the others may be involved in teaching a Sunday school class or a home Bible study, something like that, but there are some really solid results from that ministry out there, both in Ukraine. There's uh, one couple that is down in Turkey as missionaries uh, in central Turkey, somewhere near Ankara. There are also a couple that are in Belarus as well as in Russia. So uh, <clears throat> the word of God is being faithfully taught uh, throughout that, that region. All right, today we're back in Matthew 24. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to look at verses 23 to 31 this morning. 23 to 31. 
And I want to spend a little time, since it's been a couple of weeks since I was here, three Sundays back, I guess, was when we covered the uh, section from 15 to 22. And so I want to go over some of this and review um, some of that material. Today, as we look at this, I'm going to go through seven parts, seven questions. First of all, we'll have a review looking at the connection of Matthew 24, uh, 23 to 31 with the previous context, verses 13 to uh, 22. Then we're going to look at verses 23 to 26 and ask the question, what is the significant uh, significance about the warning of the rise of false messiahs and false prophets in these uh, four verses. Following that, we'll ask the question, how is the coming of the Son of Man described? And if you notice, we're going to look at verses 27 and 29. 28 is a strange verse, so we're going to take it separately and ask, what does this mean about the carcass and the eagles gathering in verse 28? Fifth, we'll look at the term tribes of the earth, but I think it should be translated tribes of the land, and how do they respond, and what is the significance of that verse. And then sixth, the last verse, what is meant by the gathering by the angels, and then what should our response be in terms of what we learn from this passage. So initially, we'll look at a review. What is the connection of Matthew 24, 23 to 31 with the previous context. The more that I study this, and as I was over in Kiev during the last uh, couple of weeks teaching on judgments and rewards, part of that involves these parables that are coming up. We have the parable of the fig tree, 32 to 35. How do we interpret that and what's its connection within the passage? That's really important for proper interpretation to understand that. Then we have another parable right at the end of the chapter, uh, who then is a faithful and wise servant, and what is the significance of that parable? Then we have another parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins at the beginning of chapter 25, and then the parable of the talents. And all of those relate to judgments that come at the end of the tribulation as well as rewards, which, of course, was the title of my uh, course. So I've spent a lot of time studying this. Not the easiest section here. There are disagreements between uh, a number of dispensationalists, as I've pointed out before, those who are premillennial, uh, pre-tribulational, uh, do not see eye to eye on a lot of this. I think this is due primarily to some hermeneutical inconsistencies, which I've pointed out some in the past, and I'll point out as we get into the latter part of the chapter. Uh, this chapter begins, as I pointed out, Jesus had announced that the house of, of Israel, that is the temple, uh, would be left to them desolate. He announces that judgment is coming on Israel because of the uh, fact that the religious leadership, the, specifically the Pharisees, have rejected him as the Messiah. And we studied this in chapter 23 with the seven statements, the announcements, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's very clear he is addressing them as unbelievers who have rejected his offer of the Messiah. And so he announces that the 
temple will be destroyed. That was the second temple. It was the second stage of the second temple, the temple of uh, the Herodian uh, renovation of the temple, and that would be fulfilled in A.D. 70. And the disciples, as they look at the beautiful, glorious temple, which was considered to be uh, the eighth wonder of the ancient world, it was it was incredible. They said, "You, you, Rabbi said, if you had not seen beauty, if you had not seen the temple, and they can't imagine that it would be destroyed." And so they asked two questions: <clears throat> Tell us first of all, when will these things be? And second, what will be the sign of your coming? and the end of your age. And I pointed out that they don't say signs. We often hear people say, well, what are the signs of the times, signs of his coming? It's just like folks who misread the title of the last book of the New Testament and say revelations and put that S on the end. And every time I hear that, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, it's one revelation. It's one sign, which we're looking at this morning. Just a reminder, Jesus is talking to them as Jews about Jewish prophecy, specifically the kingdom. The kingdom is a literal geophysical kingdom that will be initiated on the earth by the arrival of the Messiah. He's come once to offer the kingdom. It was rejected. When he comes a second time, he will establish his kingdom. So the Olivet Discourse, therefore, is addressed to the disciples as Jews representing Israel and it is the last thing that he says in his earthly ministry about Israel and God's plan for Israel in the future. Therefore, number three, nothing in the Olivet Discourse is about church-age believers or has direct application to church-age believers, but certainly has implications for us in understanding God and his faithfulness and the importance of judgment. Fourth, all living church-age believers will be raptured and taken to heaven before the beginning of the tribulation. So we will not be here on the earth during this time. The time frame for this period is what is described as Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter uh, chapter 9. And it is also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. In that in that. Um, chronological outline in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, we have in the Hebrews the phrase 70 periods of seven. That's been translated as weeks, but it's 70 periods of seven, which is actually 70 periods of seven years, which turns out to be 490 years. 483 years have already been fulfilled. That last seven-year period is the period that comes at the end immediately preceding the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. It will begin, according to Daniel 9, when the prince who is to come will sign a peace treaty or contract or covenant with Israel guaranteeing their peace. And so they are at peace for the first three and a half years. This is, But in the world there are judgments that are coming about. In our study of Revelation we saw that the uh, seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments take place in that first half. It's described in Matthew 24, 8 as the beginning of labor pains. And then in uh, verse 6, Jesus says, but the end is not yet. What marks the middle of the seven-year period is the desecration of the temple. Now, how many of y'all have thought about this? Let me ask you a question. 
What kind of temple is this? It's an apostate temple. Can you desecrate an apostate temple? Obviously you can. They commit, the Antichrist will commit blasphemy there. I, the reason I pointed that out is I've heard some people say when I have talked about the importance of Israel even in the tribulation period and the return of Jews to the land today, they'll say, but they're returning in apostasy. It has no significance. Well, if the fact that they're in apostasy has no significance, then the temple being an apostate temple would have no significance. But the apostate temple can still be desecrated. So therefore, an apostate temple has significance. That means that the return of an apostate people to the land has significance. That's a little logic you can work through later on. So the temple, the apostate temple, the third temple, will be desecrated and God will bring judgment as a result of that. The second half of the tribulation is described as a period of increased labor pains or increased uh, birth pains. And Jesus says in verse 14, then the end will come. So what we see is the first three and a half years are the beginning of sorrows. The second three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, you have increased persecution of the Jews, especially Jewish Christians. Uh, after the Antichrist breaks the covenant, that's described in verses 9 through 14. And then in verse 15, which we looked at the last time, there's a warning to Jewish believers. Why Jewish believers? Because unbelievers aren't going to care what Jesus says. They're not going to respond to it. When Jesus says to flee, they're going to say, who cares? Who's Jesus? He was just another prophet at best. So Jewish Christians in Judea are to immediately flee when they see the abomination of desolation. I mean, they are not to stop. They are not to uh, pass go. They're not to collect $200. They are to get out of town immediately, if not sooner. Now, we talked last time about this abomination of desolation. It's described in Daniel 9, uh, 26 and 27, uh, specifically in verse 27, which where it says, In the middle of the week, okay, here we are in this verse, In the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So he stops what he has allowed. Under his authority, the Jews have been able to carry on their daily sacrifices and offerings in this apostate temple that they have erected, putting it back under the Mosaic law. And then the text says, on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. So there's going to be a series of these blasphemous desecrations of the temple, and he will make the temple desolate. He creates this great blasphemy. What does that involve? In Daniel 11.31, this terminology appears again. He defiles the sanctuary. He takes away the daily sacrifices. Remember, these are apostates, so he can still defile them. And he places there the abomination of desolation, which is going to be first himself to be worshipped as God, and then he replaces himself with a statue or idol of himself to be worshipped. He will, in verse Daniel 11.36, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. Remember, Jeremiah said this is the time of Jacob's wrath. So until 
God determines the end, he will be allowed to carry on his blasphemy. Second Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away. I believe that word in the Greek apostasia, normally translated apostasy, but in a number of uses and various forms of that word, it also means departure. I think that if the rapture is a signless event, then worldwide apostasy is not a sign of the soon coming of the Lord. It is the departure that comes first, the rapture, and the man of sin is revealed, so we don't see the Antichrist until after the rapture. He's called the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so he will then erect a statue of himself, and he will be worshipped. This is what is described in Revelation 13, 4, and 5. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. That's Satan. So they're not only worshiping the beast, they know that behind the beast is the power of Satan. They worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And the way the questions are phrased is no one. No one is like him. No one can depose him. No one can defeat him. And he was given passive voice, means God permissively allows him to carry out his arrogant plans. He's given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Now, 42 months is three and a half years. Now, last week, as I ended, I pointed out that at the end of uh, the, the previous section I covered, In verse 22 we read, But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That is, those days of the the tribulation. Now there are some that think that what that means is that maybe the Lord will come back before the three and a half years are over with. That's not what that is saying, and I, I stated that last week. What that means is that God could have allowed this to go on longer than three and a half years years or 42 months or 1,260 days. But if it had gone on another 45 days or another uh, two months or three months, then every human being would have been killed. All of Israel would have been killed. So God limited the extent of uh, the, the damage during the tribulation period. So he is only given 42 months. Now, I put the calculations up there for you. 42 months, each month having 30 days because it's a lunar month. It's not a solar month. It's not a calendar like we have today. That means the Jewish calendar was a calendar of 360 days, not 365 uh, and a quarter days. So uh, we have 42 months times 30 days is 1,260 days. Now, in Daniel 12:11, we read, From that time, that is the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. See, that's 30 days longer. That's a month longer. Now, a lot of people have questioned, well, what's the difference? Why all of a sudden do we have this? And I put this little chart together. 
from the, abomina- uh, from the abomination of desolation, which is halfway through the tribulation period, to the second coming, according to Revelation 12.6, it's 1,260 days uh, where God protects Israel in the wilderness. That works out to three and a half uh, years or 42 months. In Daniel 12.11, there are 1,290 days from the setting up of the abomination of desolation until the end. And there's a couple of different ways this is explained. It's not explained in the text. Some people suggest that the 30 days will come at the beginning. Uh, This is stated by Dr. Walvert in his uh, commentary on Daniel in the Bible Knowledge Commentaries. He says some people put it at the beginning that this may be the preparation for uh, include the preparation for putting this idol in the in the temple, but most that I have read and the, most of the explanations I've read is that the thirty days comes at the end uh, after the Lord returns. There's sort of a cleaning up, mopping up operation, including the time frame for the campaign of Armageddon, and that that thirty days would be part of that. There's also another statement in the very next verse in Daniel 12, in Daniel 12.12, 12, that says there will be 1,335 days. That's 45 days beyond Daniel 12.11. So what many people believe is the first 30 days are time of judgments, the time of judgments on the surviving Gentiles, time of judgments on the surviving Jews. Those are some of the... Uh, judgments will study at the end of Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25. And then the next 45 days are the times of rewards and blessings that are put into pay- place before the millennial kingdom actually, actually kicks off. Then we saw in Matthew 24:17 to 18 the urgency of their departure once the, the Jewish Believers in Israel see the abomination of desolation. They're not to do anything. Uh, they're not to go to their bank account. They're not to hit their uh, go home. And they're not if they're on the rooftop. They aren't even to go down into their uh, house and grab their go bag. They are to immediately leave. Why? Well, if you think about this and what is going on, the Antichrist has established himself in power. He is now taking this enormous step to be worshipped as a god and to take his place in the Holy of Holies. He has a great organizational ability. His his Gestapo and his SS troops are all in place to immediately go out. They have their printouts, their orders to arrest and to perhaps kill every Jewish Christian in Judea, and of course Jerusalem would be included in that. And so the or, what the Lord is ordering here is as soon as you know this, as soon as you hear this, don't stop and do anything. Just leave. Just leave everything behind. Don't go get a coat. Don't grab your go bag. Don't grab your gun. Don't grab your uh, Tavor, your M16, whatever it is. Just leave and trust me to protect you and provide for you. If you're out in the field, if you're in the backyard or you're out in your vineyard and you're working, don't go back to get clothes. Don't go back. Just leave from there. You don't have time because the Gestapo could be at your door by the time you get there. And you need to pray. It, because it will be uh, calamitous. 
if you're pregnant or you're in ill health and it will make it even more difficult for you to make the journey into the wilderness, into the mountains, the hill country of Judea. So woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Not that there's something wrong with this. Anything of this type would just make it more difficult for them to flee and to uh, leave Judea and head into the wilderness. And then he says, and pray that your flight may not be uh, in the winter or on the Sabbath. I think this is a prayer that God intends to answer, that they should pray for this, that when knowing that this would come, because this is what Jesus tells them, I have warned you uh, about this, and so you are prepared. And so they are to pray, and God intends to answer this, and in that way, he will, again, provide some protection for them. Now, as I was looking at <clears throat> these verses, specifically the, the ones that are talking about if you're, those in Judea are supposed to flee, this tells us something about it, how the Bible is supposed to be interpreted. I have not spent much time teaching about how amillennialists interpret this or how preterists interpret this. These are people who do not believe these events are in the future, but they're either totally symbolic or they were fulfilled in the judgment of A.D. 70. But nevertheless, there are certain elements within the instructions here that they take literally. So this is an example of what literal interpretation means. Judea means Judea. In verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Very precise there. It's not talking about those who are in Samaria or those who are in Galilee. Certainly not talking about those who are in Texas or New York or London or Paris. So Judea means Judea, not Houston, London, New York, or wherever you live. It is specifically to Jewish believers in Judea. This would include Judea and Jerusalem. To the mountains doesn't mean to the hill country of Texas, doesn't mean to the Rocky Mountains or to the Cascades or to uh, <clears throat> the Blue Ridge Mountains or anywhere else. It is to flee to the southern hill country of Judea and across into the area of, of, uh, of Jordan today in the area around uh, <clears throat> Petra and Basra, as I pointed out last time. And so there's an immediate danger of arrest, and that means to flee immediately. They are to trust God to provide for them, and God has given them a historical precedent for that. And this happened in the wilderness wanderings, which lasted for 40 years, that are described in, in uh, Exodus and in Numbers and uh, in Leviticus. And in Deuteronomy 29.5, God said, "...and I have led you 40 years in the wilderness." Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. And I'm always amazed by that verse, that that there God miraculously provided them with food and with water, and their clothing didn't wear out. And this will be true in a much shorter period of three and a half years that God is going to protect those surviving Jewish believers who follow his command to leave immediately. He will protect them. He will provide them with clothes. He will provide them with water and food, everything that they need. That's why they don't need to go back home and grab their go bags. They are to trust in the Lord. Nehemiah 
reiterated this in Nehemiah 9.21. Forty years you sustained them, speaking to God in prayer. You sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You know, there's an implication there for every believer in every dispensation, but especially true of those who are believers in the church age or in Christ, and that is that statement, they lacked nothing. God has provided us with everything we need. It just that so often we think that we need other things in order to be happy, and we focus on all of these details of life, and we forget that we're on a mission. We're on a mission to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, and he gives us that which we need to sustain us in this life to complete the mission that he has given us. And so often we get our our eyes on the details, we get our eyes on people, we get our eyes on things, we get our eyes on circumstances, and our happiness and our joy is based on that relationship with God, and he provides everything. We lack nothing. The New Testament tells us that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has given us what we need, and we need to trust in his provision and not be like the Jews in the wilderness and say, well, I wish I had the leeks and garlics of Egypt. I wish I had uh, new clothes. I wish I had designer clothes or whatever it may be in the terms of the details of life. We lack nothing because God is the one who provides for us. And then we saw that they would flee, and they would flee into the wilderness where, according to Revelation 12, 6, there was a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. There's that number again. That's not going to be shortened. That number is shortened. That's the shortened number. In Micah 2, 12, They'll go to a place where they'll be gathered like sheep in the fold. The Hebrew word is Basra. Basra it means a sheepfold, and this is uh, near Petra in the uh, southern part of Jordan that we see today. And God is going to sustain her, as we saw last week in Revelation 12, 15, uh, 12:14. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman, that represents Israel, in order that she may fly into the wilderness to a place where she was nourished for a time times, that's two, so that's a total of three, and a half a time, that's three and a half years uh, from the presence of the Spirit. That same imagery of an eagle uh, sustaining and protecting Israel uh, in the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy 32, 10, and 11. And then the last part, <clears throat> which I flew past very quickly last time, in Matthew twenty four twenty one, for then there will be great tribulation. Now, if you listen to some theologians, and I think that Dr. Walbert, as much as I respect his scholarship and much that he did, he took this as a technical term. And in the Greek, there's not a an article with either the adjective or the noun. Now, that's not necessary, as we know in, in Greek, that, that definiteness can be inherent within a noun. We see that in British English. They'll talk about going to university or going to hospital. They leave off the definite article because it's inherent in the noun. But in Greek, the uniqueness of something can also be the focus of leaving the article off, that, that it's a qualitative sense. 
And that's the same thing that is said of, of, of Jesus' deity in John 1, 1, uh, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is a narthrus. It doesn't have an article with it. And it's emphasizing the quality of Jesus as being fully God. Well, that's what I believe is being said here. The phrase great tribulation is used in two places, here and in Revelation uh, chapter 7, which talks about this great host of martyrs that come out of the... The only judgments mentioned to that point are the seal judgments. And so if you take this as the second half, which is what Dr. Walver did, then you end up doing what he did, taking the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, and putting all of them into the second half. I think Dr. Chafer did that as well. I don't know anybody today who takes that, who holds that view, but you will still run across that with, with some people. And I think another part of what contributed to that error was the idea that there would be peace during the first three and a half years. The peace the peace treaty that the Antichrist entered into with Israel gave Israel peace, but not the rest of the world. That's why they heard about wars and rumors of wars, but Israel was at peace. So the idea of a great tribulation was that there was a beginning of sorrows. There was beginning of tribulation of adversity in the first three and a half years, and then it went into high gear and intensified in the second half. And that's what Jesus is saying. Then there will be an intensified adversity, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And Matthew twenty four twenty two, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elects, that is the choice ones' sake, those days will be shortened. And this is referring in this context to tribulation saints, specifically Jewish believers. For their sake, these days will be shortened. Otherwise, if instead of going 1,260 days, if it went 1,290 days, are 1,335 days, then all of the Jews would be killed. All of mankind would be destroyed. So by stopping it at 1,260 days, it prevents the total annihilation of the human race. And so the 1,260 days represents that shortened uh, time period. Now, in this section... Having reviewed what we covered last time and added a few things to it, we asked the second question, what's the significance of the warning about the rise of false messiahs and false prophets? This starts in verse 23 and goes through verse 26. There Jesus says, then, that is, as he has used the word then all the way through this section, he's talking about then following the previous events that he has talked about, uh, that is, then after the abomination of desolation during this period of the second half of the tribulation, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, I think this will make more sense to us if we go with the original that the meaning of Christos is the Messiah. Look, here is the Messiah, or there. Don't believe it. What's going on here? Jesus explains in verse 24, For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, that is, the choice ones. 
See, I've told you beforehand. All of this is a warning to those tribulation believers who survived to protect them during the horrors that are described back in verses 9 through 14. He says, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't believe, don't go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. He's, he's got a secret chamber in the temple. Uh, he's hiding there, waiting for you. Go find him. Says, don't believe it. Tommy Ice, who covered for me, I heard good reports about Tommy's classes while, uh, uh, while I was gone to Kiev. Everybody enjoys Tommy. Tommy wrote a, I think it was 38 or 39 part series of articles on the Olivet Discourse uh, a few years ago. Actually, that lasted a few years. You have 38 parts and you're coming out six times a year. Well, you do the math. That probably took six years for him to write all those articles. He just did a tremendous job of research. But he concludes here, as events unfold during the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist, that is the beast of Revelation, attempts to entice the elect Jewish remnant out of their wilderness hiding by saying that the Messiah is clandestinely in Jerusalem. Thus, they should come and see him. However, Jesus has warned his disciples in advance not to listen to such propaganda. Remember, the objective of Satan and the objective of the Antichrist is to destroy all the Jews in the whole world and every Jewish believer. And so when they escape and he's not able to follow them and God prevents him from being able to destroy them, he is going to try to entice them out of hiding and there's going to be a tremendous propaganda machine that the Messiah has come. He's here in Jerusalem. Come and see him to try to get them to come out of their hiding place in in Basra. But this will not be effective because Christ has warned them. A couple of things that we should observe here that the terms Christ, that is Messiah, or false Christ, that is the false prophet, and false prophets are all oriented to Judaism. We don't have a problem in the New Testament with false messiahs and false prophets. Read from Romans to Jude, and you won't see warnings to the church about false messiahs and false prophets. Those are Jewish terms. What you will see in the New Testament is warnings about false teachers. So this tells us that this is specifically Jewish in its uh, orientation. Second thing that we see here is that they're going to be performing great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, I believe there's two views here. One is that these miracles are just they're, they're, they're sleight-of-hand miracles. They're like the David Copperfield-type illusions that will deceive people. I don't believe that's true. I believe in Deuteronomy chapter 13, when God warned Israel about false prophets, they, they will come and they will perform miracles, and even if they heal people, assuming that they can genuinely heal people and genuinely perform miracles. If they tell you to do something other than what my word has told you, don't believe them because I have allowed them to come in order to test you and see if you will believe my word over your experience. 
And this is what will happen uh, in the end times, is that they will have these miracles, and people will be deceived. They'll say, oh, it must be from God because they performed a miracle. But this is not true. They are going to be genuine miracles. That's why they're called great signs and wonders to deceive. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, we read that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all the power, signs, and lying wonders. They're, they're genuine miracles, but they're attesting a deception. That's why they're called lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And then in Revelation 13, 13 and 14 and 15, talking about the false prophet that will come. There will be many, as we see in this passage, false messiahs and false prophets. There will be one antichrist and one false prophet who lead them all. But in verse 13, we read, He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And if you remember in Exodus that the magicians of Pharaoh could duplicate the first four or five miracles that Moses performed uh, in order to deceive people into their uh, genuineness. It's the same kind of thing. It's a genuine miracle. It's just attesting a fraudulent individual. Verse 14, And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth. That's a term in Revelation for unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So this is when the Antichrist has his head wound. He comes back to life. He makes an image to him. This all happens right at the midpoint of the tribulation. And then he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. So he's going to create this idol. It's going to be more than artificial intelligence. He's going to bring it to life. To li- like a living being, he's going to be a breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this is the significance of the warning. Third question, how is the coming of the Son of Man described? This is amazing. We, we can't imagine this. Just listen to what happens. Number, we're going to look at the two verses, leave out verse 28 at first. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What it says here is there's going to be this brilliant lightning that is going to be global. Everyone will see it. It will be a brilliant flash of light that will be piercing, and it will be piercing the darkness. Look at verse 29. This is... Uh, parallel to several passages in Scripture describing the end of the tribulation period. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, note the timing there, as it's coming to the end and the Lord is about to return, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The earth will be in pitch black darkness. Think of the fear on people's minds, how panicky they will be. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. And in the midst of that, 
this darkness, as people think it is about to end and human history will end and the planet will explode, in that pitch black darkness like we've never seen, there will be this brilliant lightning that will flash from east to west as the Lord penetrates it with his Shekinah glory and separates the darkness and enters into human into human history, into the atmosphere, and descends into Israel. This is what happens. As the kingdom appears, it does so brilliantly, explosively, and so that everybody sees it and no one can miss it. Now, there's a parallel to this that's often misunderstood, and that's found in Luke 17, 20, and 21. Jesus is in a confrontation with the Pharisees, and he says, Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. That's the New King James. That's a fairly decent translation. Nor will they say, See here or see there. And then he says to the uh Pharisees, a statement often misunderstood, for the kingdom of God is within you. That's a bad translation. Psychologists have said, see, there's a little bit of God in every one of us. That's not what this is saying. Others have, and I've been guilty of this in the past, is taking this as the kingdom of God is in your presence because the king was there. But I think that ignores the context here. Jesus is talking about how the kingdom of God is going to come. It doesn't come gradually with observation, uh, as the uh, <clears throat> the New American Standard translates it, coming with signs to be observed. Now, we just saw in Matthew that there's going to be this sign of his coming, this lightning that's going to come from east to west. So the word sign isn't in the original. It's just the word paratoresis, which indicates not that it will come gradually so that men can observe it, but it's the idea that it, that it won't come in an, this slow, observable way, but it will come with this piercing, immediate presence. Now that takes us, of course, to verse 28, which is the fourth question, what does that mean? For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now this really pictures uh, corpses that are scattered because of the devastation of the judgments. And that eagles, the word can also refer to vultures, those carrion eaters will gather together where the corpses are. Tommy Figert, Figert, who wrote a great work on Matthew, the king of the king of heaven, says taken literally means that wherever dead bodies are, there the atoy, that is eagles or vultures, will descend upon them. From a physical point of view, the vast carnage will result in this very Thing. I'm not going to read the rest of the quote, but that's the main point, is this is the judgment. It's connected to what is described in Revelation 19, 17, and 18, where John says, Then I saw an angel descending or standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. With the massive destruction, at the closing out of the judgments of Revelation, there will be such devastation, so many dead, that the birds will gather to eat the dead. That's what verse 28 talks about. 
And then verse 29, follow, as it follows that, immediately after the tribulation, talks about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light. This is reminiscent of Joel 2.31, which describes the day of the Lord, that the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome uh, day of the Lord. Uh, there is also a description of this in Joel 3.15, which refers to a blackout that occurs just prior to the return of the Messiah. And so we see that all of this describes the lead-up to this dramatic entry of Jesus Christ into the earth's atmosphere as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then in verse 30, we read of the entry of the Son of Man and the response of those in the land. Then the sign of the Son of Man. All these verses, 26 verses leading up to verse 30. What is the sign of your coming? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes. Now that's not talking about all the Gentiles, the Germans, and the uh, Scandinavians, and the Russians, and the Chinese, and the Japanese. This phrase, fule, is almost always used to describe the 12 tribes of Israel. It says, and then all the tribes. See, this is a Jewish context. Then all the tribes. Jesus comes not to the earth as a whole, as it were, but he goes to one geographical location in Israel, the tribes of the land. The word there, gates, in Hebrew can mean earth or can also refer to the land of Israel. So he comes to Israel, and all the tribes, the 12 tribes of the land, will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is predicted in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, where God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon on the plain of Megiddo, and the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, etc. This is echoed at the beginning of Revelation in Revelation one seven, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes, again, that same language, talking about Israel, the, uh, the tribes of the land will mourn because of him, even so, amen. And then we come to the last question, or next to last question, which is question six, what's the gathering by the angels? And this is when God sends out his angels. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. This isn't the last trumpet. This isn't the trumpet of the rapture. This is the trumpet that closes out the tribulation period at the time of the second coming. A great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect. Now, if this is the rapture, we've got all these things that have to happen before the rapture. We wouldn't be looking for the return of Jesus Christ, we'd be looking for the Antichrist. We'd be looking for the tribulation. We'd be looking for all these other things. 
because they would have to precede the coming of Jesus Christ. So this isn't talking about the rapture, which is a signless event. This is talking about the second coming. And at that time, these angels will gather together his elect, that is, his choice ones, from the four winds. And I think in context, what he's doing is bringing Israel, the remnant, those who survived, all of the Jewish believers back to Israel from one end of heaven to the other. And that takes us to our last question, which is what should our response be? And I will focus this on three basic observations. What should be our response? First of all, we need to be reminded that God is in control of history. No matter what the devastations are, no matter what economic or military collapses there are, no matter what personal devastations there are, God is in control of history, and whatever happens, he does not lose control. He will accomplish his purposes. Second, he will fulfill his promises to Israel. He promised that he would give them the land, he will give them the land. He promised that he would restore them to the land, he will restore them to the land. Therefore, God will also be faithful to us in fulfilling his promises to us in every year. If God can provide the needs of the Israelites for 40 years in the wilderness, God can certainly take care of us for a short time on this earth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together, to focus on you, to be reminded that history has a purpose, our lives have meaning and a purpose, and we are to serve you in this life. And though this passage speaks of a future generation and does not involve us as the church, nevertheless, we are encouraged by your faithfulness, knowing that in the vicissitudes of life, sometimes we get down and discouraged, and sometimes we think that that there isn't a plan, there isn't a purpose, and somehow things are out of control. But this shows us that you are always in control, and you are faithful, and you will accomplish your plan and your purposes, and you will be true to your promises. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today that is unsure of their salvation or their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says we're all born spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, but that you have provided a gracious salvation, not based on works, not based on what we have done, but based on what Christ did on the cross. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, that all that is needed is to believe in Jesus as Savior, and we instantly have eternal life, which can never be taken from us. And Father, this morning as we pray, we're also reminded of our good friend David Rosalind, his uh, sister Carrie, her husband Todd, David's mother Linda, and the sudden taking of his father uh, Bert to be with you. We rejoice in his victory over death. Uh, but we pray for the family that with the suddenness of this departure that this will be a time of uh, blessing for them, a time when they can bless others, and a time of great testimony that glorifies you. And we pray that you would uh, strengthen and sustain and encourage them with your word during this time of loss. And, Father, for us, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us as a congregation and as individual believers as we show love for one another and live out our testimonies for you in this life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.